Season 2 of Hard to Believe is a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can find this and other great shows at cageclub.me. The complete Season 1 archive is also available at hardtobelieve.me. This show is now available on YouTube. Just search Hard to Believe Podcast. You can email me at john at cageclub.me. We're on Facebook at Hard to Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. In 2008, evangelical leader Richard Sizick very publicly resigned from his position as the Vice President for Governmental Affairs of the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals. Sizick, considered a moderate within the movement, was always a bit of a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. But his support of same-sex unions and his vocal acceptance of climate science ultimately proved a bridge too far. In 2006, he had signed the call to action put forth by the Evangelical Climate Initiative, a group within the NAE calling for a Christian response to the emerging ecological crisis. He removed his name under pressure from his most prominent contemporaries. In 2007, a large coalition of evangelical leaders, including James Dobson, signed a letter effectively pressuring Sizek to either amend his positions or step down. He chose the latter. Sizek's ordeal and his subsequent involvement as chief spokesperson for the Good Steward Campaign, a Christian movement to encourage environmental stewardship and divestment in fossil fuels within a biblical framework, was, we were told at the time, the turning point for the evangelical movement's aversion to climate action. It wasn't. Evangelical Christians, especially fundamentalist evangelical Christians, have long presented a seemingly unmovable obstacle to climate action. For reasons that are complicated and varied, but carry a religious zeal that is unresponsive to reason and data, in 2016, evangelicals voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, the most ecologically catastrophic president in modern history, a man who literally turned the State Department over to ExxonMobil and put the coal industry in charge of the EPA. Evangelical support for Trump remains relatively steadfast, except when it comes to young evangelicals. Alex Morris is a senior writer for Rolling Stone magazine, and she's covered a number of stories at the intersection of faith and politics, especially as it concerns young people. She recently wrote a story about evangelical activists in the climate movement, including a fast-growing group called YECA, Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. And this gives me some hope because I've always known that if the religious zeal opposing climate action could instead be put to use for it, then that really would represent a game-changing turn. I should note before we start some context for our discussion, I spoke to Alex in August before Hurricane Ida made history in the Gulf Coast and would later drown parts of New York City, killing dozens in the Northeast, and right after the publication of the most recent IPCC report, which confirmed once and for all the ecological collapse we are witnessing is man-made and now certain to warm the planet for the foreseeable future, even if we take drastic measures to stop it now. We had to delay our conversation as the lights in my house in Massachusetts flickered as I endured a tornado warning. I grew up in New England and never once concerned myself with tornadoes. In the last five years, I've grown accustomed to waiting out tornado warnings at least twice per summer. Alex Morris is my guest today. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe.
Um, Alex, welcome, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's great to have you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your um, your background as um, a journalist and the things that you cover and the sort of um, uh, interest that you have in in what you explore and sort of where that comes from. So, you, I mean, you've talked to a lot of um, pop musicians. You've also talked to the Dalai Lama. Um, <laughs> so, so you have yeah. you have quite an interesting. Uh, breadth of field in terms of um, your 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 topics and your subjects. Um, you, you write quite a bit about religion uh, and religion in America um, and how that sort of intersects with with our culture. Um, what 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 sort of led you to um, that area of interest? Yeah, so I, about half of what I do are, are celebrity profiles, which I. I tend to do a sort of palate cleansers after longer, more (laughs) investigative pieces. Um, And it's, it's funny, you know, I, I've always thought of myself as a journalist who didn't really have a beat that I I just sort of would follow what I was curious about at the time. And um, over the past few years, I've started to see that a lot of what I ended up covering, um, it wasn't explicitly about religion, but it, it per- really, if you sort of pulled back the curtains, that's what it pertained to. Um, it, it was my way of sort of grappling with my religious upbringing, my current faith, and um, you know, and, and I'm thinking of stories about women's rights, LGBTQ rights, you know, things that like you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily clock as a religion piece, but in I think for me they kind of were, um, and then around the time that, you know, Trump got elected, uh, the religion, religion became a much, um, more prevalent topic of discussion because of the way it was so enmeshed with politics and Rolling Stone, um, to their credit, asked me to write a piece about the religious right, um, knowing knowing what my background was. And, and I say to their credit because I think they easily could have assigned that piece to someone who really just w- wanted to do a total takedown of that demographic. Sure. Um, but that's not what they were interested in. They wanted someone who really understood it, who, who spoke the language, who came from that world, um, who, you know, um, had a lot of empathy um, and understanding for it. And so that piece um, that I wrote uh, some years back now really kind of led into me covering religion a little bit more explicitly. It was, you know, it was was one of our biggest pieces of the year. I think it's got about a million, a million page views at this point. Um, And so it it sort of hit a nerve, um, both for our readers and also really for me. I was like, oh, yeah, let's this this is something that I really want to keep exploring. Has has your life as a journalist impacted, or, or I mean, has has your sort of um, your, your own understanding of your own faith like uh, grown and changed by by doing this journalism, or, or or do you feel like you kind of bring a you're sort of set in in, in your perspective and you kind of bring that that um, that angle or that lens to um, the way that you cover these issues? I mean, I think um, I think my <laughs> My faith changes day to day, if not hour to hour, sure. you know, um, <laughs> right. it's right. like, what, like what minute are you talking about? <laughs> um, right. it's definitely, it's not been a static thing for me and absolutely my reporting is my way of, of working through what I 
think about my faith. And uh, I absolutely um, identify as a Christian. I go to church, um, but I don't go to the type of Christian church that I grew up in. Um, and I kind of moved around a lot. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a process, you know. I I don't believe people who say that they never you know, doubt or their 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 religious beliefs like never change. I just so absolutely yes, my reporting um, very much has factored into my own faith journey or, or whatever you would call it. So the reason that I, I really wanted to talk to you specifically is um, I, I had reached out to you because the uh, most recent climate assessment came out last week um, as we're recording this, or maybe two weeks ago. Um, time is a, is a <laughs> gi- right. giant blur right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but sometime sometime recently, and uh, it's not it's not great. Um, and. I certainly have been feeling a lot of anxiety uh, and and sort of existential dread um, over over the whole thing. Um, But I've also, I've known for a long time that there is a, one of the big challenges in um, addressing the the climate crisis is um, rooted in certain strains of fundamentalist Christianity and the evangelical movement. Um, And and so you've written two pieces over the last, uh, in the last year, ish uh i think they were published right within like a year of each other and one one was about the way that um the climate crisis is affecting kids uh and this sort of new generation of of climate crisis kids uh and the other which is a really um i think important point as well is is the way that the young evangelical movement is shifting the conversation about these things i want to talk about both of those if you don't mind um Starting starting with the with with the earlier one. So so your the first piece uh, about how kids are are, are growing up <laughs> with this with this new reality um, really hits home to me. I, I uh, before I had kids was really having sort of a moral questioning as to whether or not it was a good idea to bring kids into this world um, the way things are right now. And as they're getting older, my, my oldest will be eight in November, um, really thinking about how to actually, you know, enter into this conversation with them, um, that the reality of, of what the future looks like and these new weather patterns and pandemics and um, et cetera, et cetera. So can you just give me a brief kind of, um, first of all, like what inspired writing for you, writing that piece? Um to begin with. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the, um, some of the things that came out of it. Sure. So it sounds like I'm in a pretty similar situation to you. My oldest turns eight in October and Mm -hmm. I also have a three-year-old. And then by the time I had my daughter, it was a really prevalent question that people were asking themselves, like how responsible is it to have kids, you know, both, Mm -hmm both for the environment and and for the kids themselves that are going to have to live out this uncertain future. Um, And so that was something that was definitely on my mind. And then, um, and and I kind of wanted to explore. And then also the question of how do we talk about this with our kids? How do we prepare them for it? Um, Is, you know, I think my son at the time was around six. And, uh, you know, 
they were starting to have conversations at school about climate change. And I was like, well, I need to be part of that conversation because I don't want it. You know, having come from a very conservative evangelical background where what I was, the conversations that were happening at home weren't always aligning with what I was being taught in school. Like I know how disorienting yeah. that can be. Um, and I wanted there to be kind of a clear message about this that was age appropriate, but that I was also helping to guide. Um, my son came home from school one day and he had written a petition. He'd gotten his class to sign a petition um, to save the koalas. There were really bad fires in, um, in Australia. And so I didn't know how much he sort of connected those fires to climate change, but I knew that this was something that he, that he was understanding that the natural world was in peril in some way and trying to act on it in his, you know, six-year-old way. And it was, um, it's hard, like, that's heartbreaking as a parent, right? Like, we, you know, we sent the, we sent the petition to President Trump. And he wanted to do. Um, <laughs> uh -huh. But I was like, man, I we this is something we gotta start talking about. Um and so that's how that piece came about. And it um and it was really yeah, it was really just kind of an exploration of like how do I, now that I have kids that are dealing with a reality that I didn't really do have to deal with growing up, and how and how do we mitigate how bad it is <laughs> as parents without lying to them about Right. The, the dire situation, which is, you know, it's not, in, not in question that this is a pretty bad state of affairs. Well, you wrote that right on the, um, the cusp of the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. And of mm -hmm. course, you know, the questions are also now compounded by uh, these these years of of whatever, um, you know, virtual schooling and going into quarantine and and distancing and masking and all those sorts of things. Um, so is, is there anything, you know, that like, obviously when it published, <laughs> it right. sort of immediately right, <laughs> needs this new, this new context, but is there anything like do, do, that you think, you know, having then written it and then having experienced this pandemic with your kids, um, that there's, there's there's parallels or lessons that you got from writing that piece that that you think people should keep in mind. Yeah, um, I think one of the takeaways for me that's such, such a good question because um, gosh, that it feels like such an innocent time back then. Right? Know, it's like oh, when we were just worried about climate change and that. <laughs> um, yeah, but. Um, I spoke with, and I'm totally going to blank on her name now, I'm so sorry, but I, I spoke with a woman who had done a lot of work with children in areas where it was already, you know, really threatening their way of life. Um, and she had gone into, she was very clear that you should lead, when you talk to kids about this, sort of lead with questions, sort of gauge what they're thinking instead of sitting with them down and being like, okay, so this is happening and let me tell you what it means and let me tell you what to think about it, but sort of assume that they kind of already know something about it right? and try to figure out what that is and how they feel about it and let that guide the conversation. So I've definitely thought about that in terms of the pandemic where 
you know, my son, I live in New York, my son's school was closed pretty early, um, you know, while we were all kind of still like, what, what the hell is happening? You know, like, he, he no longer had school. Um, and just sort of being like, you know, what, like, letting his, letting him, asking him questions that let him, where he was and what he was thinking kind of guide the way that we talked about it. And also not, you know, not lying. Like, you know, we, we've been very clear with our kids about like, this is a dangerous thing that's happening. And we're, you can trust us about it. We're not, you know, we don't want you to be scared, but we're not going to lie to you about what's going on. Yeah, it's a hard thing. Like I have, I sometimes wonder because, you know, I, I walk this line a lot. I teach high school students. And um, when we talk about the climate crisis, like I, I have to find this this middle ground to say, like, you should definitely recycle and like buy or buy a electric car, like do all that stuff, compost, mm-hmm, do it mm-hmm. all. And like none of that's going to solve the problem. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it'll be a drop in the bucket. But it's an important drop. It is. It is. So it's, it's, it's really hard. I sometimes wonder if I'm just like gaslighting kids. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a really difficult thing to navigate. But like I, part of it is like you want to develop a, a sense of environmental, um, you know, conscience in, in, into, these, into these kids and into the generation whereby they then feel like, you know, pressuring corporations is normal and the right thing to do but also not like when i was growing up in the in the 1990s it was all about you know saving the earth quote unquote and like recycling is going to solve all our our problems and it's like right you know (laughs) that didn't turn out to be true um because i recycled a lot like remember when it was just the hole in the ozone like that oh god yes (laughs) and they were like it's okay we'll figure out how to fix it and we did we did. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, speaking of more innocent times. <laughs> such such false hope. And then also, you know, I again, like this is I've talked about this before, but but it's also like when I was growing up again, like I I something I tell my my students is that when I was in like 4th and 5th grade, it was just assumed by everybody that we were all going to die in a nuclear holocaust because Russia was going to fire nuclear, you know, missiles at us at some point, and it was just a matter of when. And then that didn't happen, and so we had this like weird sense of um, everything just sort sort of resolves itself. And and I and I, yeah. I I think about that a lot as to like this isn't one of those things we actually have to yeah. do a lot to um, to change this and. You know, I wonder if our generation as parents is is well enough equipped to um, to deal with that, right? With 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 their children, um, when, as you said, the ozone layer hole got fixed. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's it's it is interesting because you know when you look back through history, and, and I certainly spoke to uh, a number of people about this when I was reporting that story. When you look back through history, most generations have grown up with some sort of existential threat, yes, right? Right. Um, and they've, you know, grown up and, and gone on mostly to have productive lives and um, to not, you know, that they haven't been psychologically crippled by growing up under, like, you know, like the threat of the Russians bombing us or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that 
our generation, I, I, if you grew up in the 90s, I'm assuming we're around the same age, um, that threat was certainly less, you know, this, this group that sort of grew up between or came of age between the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Twin Towers. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that was like the most peaceful time in world history ever, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I don't know if we're ill-equipped to deal with this when it comes to our kids. Um, I mean, that's a very good question. We may very well be sort of uniquely ill-equipped. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, this kind of existential threat that kids that kids know about and experience that's not new i do think that when it comes to the climate crisis it is there, there is a difference here and i did talk to people about this um and the difference is that um you know if you think about if you think about the cold war um there was kind of this this foreign evil evil you know you could sort of be like, well, this is, if something bad happens to us, it's like this other group. Whereas with the climate crisis, like we are the bad group, right? <laughs> um, it's a lot more insidious in that way. Um, psychologically, will that matter? I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't have some bearing on how, you know, kids are thinking about this um, and, and responding to it. And also with things like the Cold War, even, you know, there was a sense that like the adults in the room would work it out. Like some, you know, it, it was something that could sort of be solved. And I think that a lot of kids these days have lost hope that climate change is an issue that can be solved. I mean, certainly this report that just came out, it's like, even if we stopped all CO2 emissions right, right. now, right. like, you know, we're still going to be dealing with a claim changing climate for the next three decades, you know, like that's pretty sobering. Um, yeah. Especially considering that we aren't cutting all emissions right, right. now. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so um, there, there was certainly this question that came up when I was talking to people of like, are we in a new moment in terms of the way kids are processing existential threats? And like, possibly, you know, possibly we are. And we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. I mean, I guess the big difference is that, uh, you know, it's like if we had been told no matter what you do, <laughs> the World Trade Center is going to be destroyed. And it's like, okay, you know, it, it, it's it's that sort of thing, right? It, it's it's mm -hmm. it, <laughs> that that's the added wrinkle. No one ever told us that because, of course, that's right. not something you can tell them. But it, yeah, it's the it's the addition of like, there is going to be some nuclear war. <laughs> it's just a matter of how much, you know. Exactly. Um, right. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh right. man, what a what a nightmare. Anyways, um, let's talk about the other sort of the the, the brighter news here, um, which is your your piece about evangelical movements um, moving towards uh, dealing with 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 climate change and and bucking kind of the uh, the status quo that's been so, so caked into a lot of that movement for a long time. Um, I, I've, I've had plenty of interactions with this firsthand, um, not for quite a while, but certainly when I was in my, you know, twenties and, um, and, and interacting with and talking to, uh, evangelicals, um, I tended to get two different kind of reactions, um, to, 
most of them that I talked to were, were, were like, it's all a bunch of nonsense or it's good. Right. Mm -hmm. One of the two things. And so the two camps Mm -hmm. tended to be like, don't trust authority and, and this sort of weird uh, theological argument about God being in control and whatever. And, and, and then, and that was sort of the mainstream one. And then the other one, which is maybe more troubling is the, the end times are a good thing. Like that's what I want. <laughs> so I, yeah. I want the world to end because it justifies my entire fundamentalist apocalyptic theology. Um, and I didn't see a lot of movement on either of those fronts um, for, for, for a long time, uh, which is why I find your, your piece really interesting. So if you could, can you just talk a little bit about first um who it was that you spoke to for for this piece and and like how you how you came to discover um these young evangelical climate activists yeah totally well actually going back a little bit you know you mentioned these two articles that i've written but i actually would add a third in which is an article that i wrote on how the way that evangelical christians in america are viewing sort of end times theology is having a really disproportionate effect on policy. Um, And it's really sort of, these are puppet strings that like, if you didn't grow up in this community, if you didn't understand this kind of end times thinking, you would, I don't think you'd see the puppet strings, but they're they're, they're really there. Um, And one of the things that are one of the issues that I think are really affected by end times thinking is this climate change issue. And I would venture to say that, um, you know, certainly the church that I grew up in, they very much believe in a sort of, um, you know, almost like left behind series in scenario, (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) which um, let me just say for the record, I, I think is biblically very unsound, but, Anyway, um, I'll <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Not> take. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but um, the, the funny thing about it is that I don't, I don't, within that community, there is discussion of the end times quite a bit. But like when, when, when it really boils down to it, people aren't like, you know, yes, I want the, you know, like, I want the end times to come tomorrow. I want my life to be over. Like, like that, that's actually really not kind of the way people are thinking of it, but they are thinking of it very much in a, like, there is a plan. God is in charge. We don't necessarily know the plan. We see through a glass darkly, but you know, all of these signs of, you know, the storms and the pestilence, like these are signs of the end times. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, who, and who are we to even, you know, if this is, the, if this is part of God's plan, who are we to even interfere? Kind of, you know, um, this real sense of like, God is in control. And I think, so then when it comes to the article about, the evangelical Christian climate activist, that kind of thinking was incredibly pervasive mm-hmm. for a long time, even among young Christians. Um, and it was really sort of seen, you know, if you're worried about climate change, um, 
it was almost like climate change kind of became the new like evolution versus creation debate, you know? Like it was sort of this litmus test of like what side are you on? And the reason I think it what it it became a litmus test like that is because it was like, well, how much faith do you have in God's power and serenity? You know, like if you're worried about like, do you think God is going to is not in control of his creation? Do you think God is going to let something happen that he doesn't want to happen yeah. to the earth? You know, and if you if you kind of box that logic, it was really seen as kind of heretical. And that that was the prevalent way of thinking, I think, for the past couple decades. Um, and then I do think that there has recently been this shift among young evangelicals, in part, um, I think because climate change has just become, you know, the science behind it has become so compelling. The, the, the predictions are, have become so dire. And the young people are the ones that are going to have to deal with this, you know? So it's almost like you ignore it. Well, it is like you ignore it to your own peril, you know? Um, but I honestly think the other thing that really moved the needle was Trump getting elected because it really made a lot of young Christians question their allegiance to the evangelical church in America. And, and I say that very specifically. I'm not sure it made, it, it, I'm sure it made some question their allegiance to Christianity full stop. But I think it, <clears throat> what it specifically did is it made them question the institution. And, and also, you know, once you start sort of questioning the institution and questioning the way that evangelical Christianity, white evangelical Christianity has become politicized, then you start saying, well, you know, like, what are the political issues that maybe I've been misled on? And climate change is one where when you look at the Bible, it doesn't, you know, to sort of ignore the suffering of others, to ignore the exploitation of God's creation, like, these are things that are not biblical. Like, it's right. very easy to look at the Bible and be like, wait a second, what are we doing here? Like, why is my church telling me that this is okay or telling me that it's not an issue or telling me that it's in God's hands, don't worry about it, when the Bible is very clearly telling me to care about the suffering of others. Right. <laughs> right. Not, I got this. <laughs> like, yeah. this is yeah, yeah. very clear cut. So I really honestly think that the political, what's happened politically in the country has has led a lot to this change of um, this kind of about face. And um, in terms of how I sort of got connected, there is only one, um, there's only one like very, um, there's one organization that's for like even environmental action and evangelical Christ Christians. Um, it's, it's YECA. I think it stands for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. Um, and so, it, you know, it was very easy to call them up and say, hey, I want to talk. Sure. <laughs> and they just put me in touch with a lot of people who were very, very happy to talk about this. I mean, one of their major things is, is outreach and sort of getting the word out. Because what they want to do is, is 
challenge this assumption, both outside the church, but also really within the church, that Christians don't care about climate change. Hmm. And that if you do care about it, you're not a real Christian, or you're not, you don't believe in God's serenity, or you're doing something wrong. Like they, that's something that these, these kids um, and young adults really take issue with. And so their messaging about that is, is pretty strong. You know, there's a couple things in there that I, I think are really important points. Um, you know, one thing that I think a lot of outsiders or even just kind of casual mainstream Christians maybe don't quite understand about Christianity is that you can justify anything with the Bible. It really is quite easy, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. I often make the case that slavery and abolition were both justified on biblical grounds. And so the idea that there's this kind of um, monopoly of biblical justification is 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 silly. Um yeah, and of course, you know, any reading again of, of of Genesis, you know, God doesn't say to mankind, "All right, I got everything; just hang out here." Right? It's it's not mm-hmm. that's not mm-hmm. the mandate, right? The, the mandate is um, to be stewards, uh, and that this is yours to take care of. And essentially, what happens to it really is is your doing. Um, so I certainly see the 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 grounding of. Um, a more evangelical, more literalist approach to the Bible um, as having room to create uh, a, a, a climate change-based evangelical Christianity. On the other hand, I have been told for years that this is happening. I have been told for decades that there's a mm-hmm. shift among evangelicals in the in the climate um discussion right or their positioning on mm-hmm. on climate change and I, I it keeps not being true <laughs> or at least not comporting right, to the right. facts so i guess what i w- would would ask you then is like what is the real I, I, like numerically what are the, what are the what's the data that says no there really is a generational shift that is going on here and it's not just a handful of kind of forward thinking young evangelicals, there is a, there is a, um, there's something to be optimistic about um, in in this movement. What's the evidence for that? Yeah. I mean, talking to YUCA, the the young evangelicals for climate action, they felt like there had been a real shift. Um, It was, you know, that organization was founded in 2012. So about a decade ago. um, And I was told by people in leadership there that when they started and they were going onto college campuses and they were talking to people, um, the conversation really had to go all the way back to why, why even talking about climate change wasn't heretical. Mm -hmm. You know, why it didn't, if you were talking about climate change, like that didn't necessarily mean that you had been brainwashed by like the liberal media. Um, and so they were really having to sort of go back to square one. And over the course of the past almost decade, um, they tell me that the conversation has really, really shifted where you're not, you're not having to start there now. People, young Christians understand the dire implications of climate change. Um, and they don't think that, that it's a liberal lie, you know, being perpetrated on an unwitting public. Um, so I, I think in terms of, I mean, in terms of that, the way the conversation is happening, like that, that's pretty major, um, you know, coming from that community, I can, 
to not have to explain to someone <clears throat> why climate action isn't something that they would be doing that would be counter to their faith. Like, mm -hmm. I know that that sounds like not a big deal, but like, that's actually truly a big deal. And then also just in terms of the numbers, I mean, the program, you know, this, this group, it is the only one kind of threading this needle <laughs> of young evangelicals and climate activists, but it's really grown. Um, you know, when it started, it was just like, I think maybe three campuses had, had fellows and now there's like, or at least when I was reporting the story, um, I'm sorry, originally there were four fellows in three states. Uh, when I was reporting the story, there were 20, the fellows are people who sort of sign on to be like the leaders um, and, and sort of uh, get others in their communities, their churches, their college campuses involved. But when I reported this, there were 28 fellows in 18 campuses on 12 states. So, you know, still a minority, but like that's a big... That's, that's a, you know, it, it's a, it's growing. And then also the y, YCA had had more than 25,000 people sign up and say that they had performed one of its sort of actions. Its actions could be like starting a recycling program in your church or um, launching a recycling campaign at your school or, you know, whatever it may be, they have a whole list of actions, but, you know, 25,000 people had done one of them, at least one of them. Um, and so, you know, I think, I, I do think that there's a sense that something is happening here. Now, how, I mean, 25,000 considering all the, you know, co college kids uh, in America is, is sure. not that many. Yeah. So how, how big actually is this movement? Like, I don't know. How influential could this movement actually be? I don't know. I, I think what mean what what means the most to me is the fact that the conversation has shifted. I think that that's huge. Mm -hmm. um, so and but also, I do want to point out um, that there is historically the evangelical church like really could have gone the other way when it comes to climate change and its its reaction to it. Um, there was a moment in time and it's kind of like painful to even think about, but there was a moment in time when Christians, um, there, there was like a pretty big uprising um, among evangelical Christians to take up the environmental cause. And I, I actually kind of, it started in the late sixties. Um, I want to say it was sort of tied to the, the Jesus movement. But by the 90s, and I remember this in my church, I remember discussions of this, you know, like we talked about saving the whales in my church because there is this kit, there's this sort of idea um, that we should save, we should preserve wildlife that had been saved in Noah's Ark. You know, God had saved these animals. God wanted them around. So yeah. Yeah. let's let, you know, let's like make sure they don't, disappear. And there was a pretty strong group there. There was a, it was called the evangelical environmental network, but they really were fighting back against the Republican gutting of the endangered species act. And I remember discussions of that in my church. And what happened was that group, the environmental, the evangelical environmental network got really concerned about climate change at a certain point in the early two thousands. And 
they started this evangelical climate initiative where they were having um, very sort of high profile evangelical leaders sign this declaration that we had to halt climate change. And they got some really heavy hitters to sign it. Um, like Rick Warren signed it. Yeah. Joel Hunter signed it. These are like huge names in the evangelical community. And so there was, there was honestly this moment when like truly evangelicals could have become a force for climate action. But what happened was the political operatives who had worked so hard to create this evangelical voting bloc, this very powerful voting bloc, they got really scared. And they were like, oh crap, if evangelicals start voting based on climate stuff, then they're not gonna be voting for our candidates. You know, they're not, they're gonna all of a sudden, you know, like abortion and sexuality and these other sort of culture war issues that we've created this voting block around, like those issues, like maybe they won't vote as much for those. So maybe they won't be voting for us Republicans. Maybe they'll start voting for some of the Democrats and it freaks them out. And there was a real, there was a very strong sort of backlash. Um, and they started bringing in the same kinds of, um, the kind of climate denial machine what the, the, the players in the climate denial machine, they started bringing them in and sort of giving, those same players were, were, were kind of reaching out to the evangelical community, but giving their message a little bit of like a theological spin, you know? Right. Um, where like, oh, you know, they wanted to convince, you know, they wanted to convince us that evolution was true. And now they're trying to convince us that climate change is true. And you're letting yourself be brainwashed by this. You know, they sort of tied it into this longer standing theological argument or debate. Um, and it was incredibly effective. They just kind of, you know, they kind of just let the culture wars play out at that point. And um, they played out as as we no, they have. But thinking back to that moment, it's just sort of crushing because it's it could have gone the other way. Like you see the moment in time when it could have gone the other way. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it just didn't. <laughs> 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 Which is why I kind of keep hoping that it eventually, you know, it will. And, and, and that the um, circumstantial evidence is uh pointing in that direction and i'm not being fooled again <laughs> that, like yeah i know i know um the, the noah's ark thing i think is another really you know kind of great point to um to raise as one of those things that like any side of this issue can invoke right because i hear mm -hmm. like people like jim inhofe or whatever saying oh no well god said in the bible he's not going to destroy the world again so that's that there's no climate change taken exactly. directly from, from that story. But then like, you know, I, I don't see a lot of people being like, but Noah saved all the animals and like, was an environmentalist. <laughs> right. right. So <laughs> right, there was a person that did something there. Um, yeah. And I think that's what a lot of these young people are saying right now. Like God gave us free will. God allow, you know, consequences are allowed to happen. <laughs> you know, God mm -hmm. lets us make our bed and lie in it. It's not like, you know, he swoops in and save, you know, saves Christians from, you know, whatever <laughs> messes they've gotten themselves into. 
Um, so yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and I think too that these these kids are coming up with ways to talk to their church communities about this. Um, you know, they speak again; they speak the language. So they're not talking about climate change; they're talking about creation care. They're talking about stewardship and redemption of the natural world, and like using these heavily weighted, acceptable church you know church speak um, words. Uh, and phrases, um, and, and very much not talking about the science or the data or these things, which literally one, one kid said his, you know, con congregants of his church would find triggering. Right. Um, right. That's fascinating. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is the moment in which we find ourselves people. Um, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, we'll see how much they can move the needle. And they had mixed results, you know. Some some people had found their churches fairly receptive over time. Some people just keep getting shut down, you know. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, can I can I just I want to really quickly uh, pick up a, a thread that um, you sort of left a little while ago um, concerning the impact of Trump in perhaps a kind of opposite way than a lot of people um, maybe anticipated or, or are seeing right now. And, and that is the idea, um, the, the sort of maximal optimistic idea that um, perhaps Trump was something of a jolt that was necessary um, for, or not necessary, but perhaps <laughs> what one of the, if there's any positive ramifications of the Trump uh, presidency, is that it provided a jolt not just to climate activists uh, among evangelicals or young evangelicals who are disillusioned with with the um, the full sellout to Trump uh, by a lot of their elders, but but also just broadly speaking in terms of um, you know the, the the climate movement in general. I mean, we we are on the verge, hopefully, fingers crossed, of the most serious um, domestic climate policy uh, ever. Uh, be, mm -hmm. being passed mm -hmm. should the reconciliation bill get through. Um, and, and something that basically was unthinkable, even even during, you know, the sort of um, you know, liberal uh, fantasy period of Obama, right? <laughs> um, so I, just, I wonder, like, what, what, what your thought is on that. If, if you have any of that sort of um, uh, optimism that, in fact we may be able to bounce back from Trump in a way that um, would even be more um, effective or, or positive than had Trump never happened. It's such an interesting question. And I think about it all the time, actually. Um, so here, so what Trump did very well was he polarized us, you know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> you, might, you might have picked up on that. And I think that when polarization like that happens, it forces people to take a stand in one, one direction or the other. So like a lot of young evangelical kids who kind of could have been like a little bit wishy-washy before, um, are like, well, you know, everyone in my church like believes this. I'm not sure. So I'm just going to sort of like sit it out a while, you know, or see where the wind blows. I don't think people are waiting to see where the wind blows right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so 
it, I'm sure that it has brought people over to the side of environmental action in a way that they, I mean, it tightens the importance of everything, it seems like, at least psychologically, that's what it's made us believe. Um, and when it comes to climate action, I think that the, that sense that everything is, you know, that, that sense is, is a fair sense to have, it's accurate. Um, so did Trump do us any favors? Um, <laughs> hmm. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe in that regard, that that could be like a positive legacy. I think there's also tons of young people who have just left the church altogether. Um, I think that you know the Trump presidency for the for the evangelical church in America that was ultimately probably not a good thing. But for the climate movement, it might it might have been. I don't know. It might have like really forced some people to take a stand. That wouldn't have necessarily done so. Fingers crossed. <laughs> good, good. It's yeah. It's a good thought experiment. I it hope sure is. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take anything at this point. Yeah. 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 Seriously. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to let you go. But before we do, um, is there anything you would like to um, uh, promote or point out or 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 direct people to uh, where they can find your work um, and so on? Uh, please feel free. Oh, thanks. So yeah, I, I can be found at rollingstone.com. Um, but more importantly, if anyone listening to this is um, someone who has wrestled with their faith and their desire to do something for climate change, um, I would absolutely direct you to YACA, Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. You will find like-minded people. And that is something else that almost everyone spoke to me is how lonely they have felt mm -hmm. being, you know, in their church, in their their big communities, and feeling so strongly about the environment, and not finding that much, um, you know, that many, too many people who agreed with them. Although, again, I hope that's shifting. I hope, but certainly, um, that organization is bringing together people who care about both of these things very deeply, and who, in fact, see their climate advocacy as a practice of their faith. So I would absolutely encourage people to check them out. Um, and I think that's it. Uh Great. Well, Alex, this has been uh, really fun and or not fun, but uh, <laughs> 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 really something good. I don't know. It's been great talking to you um, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you. This is why I need those palate cleansers. Gotta go find a celebrity now. Yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, no. <laughs> thank you so much. This has been, it's been a, a pleasure speaking with you, John, and thanks for having me.